Well, hello, everybody. My name is Ken Coates. I'm a senior fellow with the McDonald Murray Institute and responsible for the, uh, the Institute's very now long-standing extensive project on Indigenous people and the natural resource economy. And we're in the process of trying to articulate to the country what it is Indigenous people see in the natural resource sector, where they're participating, how they're benefiting, challenges they see in the sector, that sort of thing. And I'm joined here today uh, by Boomer Desjardins from Fort St. John, who has a long-standing professional interest and commercial interest in the oil and gas sector. And so, Boomer, please say hello. Hello, everybody. Uh, Boomer Desjardins. I'm happy to be here. It's been kind of an exciting time, I guess. I've been involved in a lot of these interviews and happy to help out any way I can, promote the oil and gas industry and the First Nations people. That's great. So tell me your own background in the sector. You're a young guy, so how long have you been involved in the sector? I started uh, working in the oil field summer jobs when I was 13, and I guess full-time when I was 16 years old, I guess. I, I worked in the oil field too long. I guess I never finished school. You know, one of my regrets, but my dad said, you know, you're not going to sit around here. you got to get out and work. And my job was to put you through school, so I guess you made up your mind. Now get to work. <laughs> <laughs> I've been out here for just about 30 years now, 33 years altogether. Whoa. What are you doing right now? What's your what's your job right now? Right now, while our company is a heavy civil service company, we build roads and leases and we do road maintenance, gravel sales, matting sales, trucking, pretty diversified. Yeah. Also, I do some sales for directional drilling, horizontal directional drilling. Okay. Now, what's your role? Are you the owner of the company or manager of the company or where do you fit in? Yeah, my wife and I started this company back in 2004, uh, February 14th. Didn't have any money, and uh, we just had an opportunity to get out there and do some labor work. So basically, we built our business up from the ground up. Started out with uh, seismic crews. We got into mulching. You know, I always knew there was another step after you get the exploration done, and you got to build the roads and the leases. So I started labor in there once again, even though I had mulchers. Learning the construction end of things, I worked my way up into running equipment and then forming in jobs and eventually dove into it and started buying equipment. How big is your company now? We got a sizable company. It's a mid-sized company, I guess. There's 100 pieces of equipment. We got about 30 truck and pups for gravel sales. We own a few gravel pits, numerous high boys, low boys, super B combinations. And we average from 50 employees to 250, something like that, depending on how busy it is. So my assumption is right now you're not very busy. Well, it's not that busy, no. Have you been hurt badly by the pandemic and by the oil and gas prices? Definitely the oil and gas prices, the bottleneck, the lack of access to tidewater for product out there. Kind of in a good area because of the natural liquid-rich gas we get up in the northeast here. It worked out where we just happened to be in Fort St. John, which is the source of the natural gas. We stay busy that way, and our road maintenance contracts and stuff keep us going. That's really neat. So, Boomer, I was raised up in the Yukon at a time when they were talking about the Alaska Highway Pipeline, which you know never actually went through, and Mackenzie Valley Pipeline, which never went through. At that time, Indigenous people were not a very prominent part of the oil and gas economy. So how unusual are you in the Fort St. John region? How many of your colleagues are Indigenous men and women? There is quite a few service companies that are Indigenous owned and operated. A lot of people have a misconception that the door is kicked open and everything's handed to you. You know, it's, it is a struggle because you are Indigenous to prove yourself out there, to, to show you're competent in your work and deliver on the product. 
I grew up in a business family. My dad was in business since I was about five years old. So I grew up around answering the phone at a young age and taking down the names and numbers to pulling wrenches after hours to make sure we're ready to go in the morning. So I was raised around what it takes to be committed and to be professional. So how many Indigenous employees do you have? Are you developing the next generation, either your own kids or other young Indigenous employees? Like I said, I grew up around the oil field. I was expected to do all kinds of stuff before I was 12 years old. I had to remind my dad a few times I'm still a kid, but, you know, I'm happy for the knowledge. That being said, you know, I find myself doing the same thing to my kids. My daughter, she's great that she wants to get on the picker truck and she knows the formulas for hoisting and rigging. And my son, yeah, he's been equipment operating since he was probably six years old. He can run cat hole, drive a big truck, disconnect trailers <laughs> and low boys and we're an oil field family and we're, we're proud of it in the area. There's quite a few other companies that are trying to break out and get going. And some of them have done really well. That's great to hear. When you were talking before, you said one of the problems is the bottleneck. We can't get our oil and gas to markets. So they're landlocked and using trucks and trains to take that stuff to market. This has actually been going on for about 40 years, going back to the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline, Alaska Highway Pipeline, attempts to get the Trans Mountain built and things of that sort. What do you say to Canadians who basically think that all Aboriginal people are opposed to pipelines? I hear this all the time down south. People say, oh, Indigenous people don't like pipelines. They, they're not in favor of them at all. Like I said, it's a big misconception out there. I'm actually joined up with a group called the Indigenous Resource Network. What we're trying to do is we're trying to bring awareness to, you know, people who think that First Nations are all opposed. If you look around today, there is a lot more engagement with First Nations people in the oil and gas sector. The government kind of mandated it. I believe that a lot of First Nations people are very interested in oil and gas as long as it's done sustainably and economically benefits the people. Firsthand, myself, I... Uh, I've been around where we start the job, we see the layout, we send in the monitors and the elders, they tell the additional areas, aspects of it, and any environmental concerns are noted. And we've seen it where the oil company will actually move the road over or move a pipeline over in favor of traditional historic areas. So it's great. I actually had an opportunity the other day to take some people from the coast on a helicopter ride over the CGL pipeline, the kickoff up here in Fort St. John. And we flew down towards Chetwin and we've seen all the great work that Sorares Murphy has been doing. The good thing about it was the people got to see how they maintain the erosion controls, how they work on the farmland. The farmer's field was nicer, so nice where the pipeline right away was. He probably wished his whole field was all pipeline because it looked mint. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Eh? It's sad that the that Indigenous folks get put in the wrong category so so easily and simply, isn't it? For a long time, you know, even for us to break out in business, it was tough because the oil company would see you and they'd ask who you're with. And they'd always say, well, we're a top-notch oil field contract and here's our safety, here's our WCB, here's our ISNet uh, ComplyWorks. Yeah. We're an independent company where we never depended on, you know, anybody kicking doors open for us or, or anything like that. But to break out of the sandbox, I would say, it was pretty tough to be recognized as a competent provider. Which is a tragedy of the past, I hope, and not so much of the future. You mentioned that the companies were listening to the elders and changing the trajectory of a pipeline and being very responsive. Talk to me a little bit about how the companies have changed in their approach to working with Indigenous businesses and Indigenous employees. Well, what I found is it's basically law or whatever in the oil field. If you want to do any work, you have to have Indigenous engagement. You have to have recordable how many... First Nations employees you have with you working. 
what kind of training benefits, how it goes back into the community. It's an excellent opportunity for people and businesses who want to work. There's still a lot to work on. Well, I don't want to get too political, but there's a lot of politics involved within the First Nations. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? I mean, that's another part of the story that within First Nations, there's the disagreements about priorities and planning and that sort of thing. In economic terms, how much of a difference is the oil and gas industry making in the, the lives of the First Nations communities in your region in Northeast British Columbia? Well, it's definitely when there's a lot of work, there's no complaining. Life is great on the, on the reserve. We don't live on the reserve ourselves, but you can see it. Everything's busy. People are happy. There's lots of opportunity. And it brings options instead of going away to work or being in a camp. You can basically work from home around here because everything's just in their backyard. It's really awesome, I believe. Oil and gas has changed our lives. It's changed my life for sure. And obviously in very positive and constructive ways. So is the future going to be more and more Indigenous engagement in the oil and gas sector? Or will First Nations use the oil and gas success, those kind of success that you've had as an individual and as a company, to diversify into other areas? Definitely, you know, you get that entrepreneurial spirit and confidence once you step out and get at her. It's not easy. We've been up and down many times, but it's the success and the winning that drives you forward. So I believe it will build confidence for people to take on new challenges. And there is a lot of activity. There's a lot of opportunity for other businesses to thrive. Definitely, I believe it will. Have you diversified your operations at all? Well, yeah, we started out mulching, you know, now we do road maintenance, lease construction, heavy haul trucking, piloting, hotshot services, flagging services, all kinds of stuff. So really exciting. So let's just assume for a second the prime minister was joining our Zoom call today. Pop up on a radio screen on the other side here. He's not. Don't worry. Don't worry. He's not coming. If you had a minute and a half to speak to the prime minister of Canada about the oil and gas industry and indigenous involvement, what would you say to him? You know, that is a pretty tough question. If those who follow me know I dislike the guy, but, you know, to be straight up, I would tell him what's the end game for all of Canada, not just the oil and gas industry. Like, I know there's a lot of industries, a lot of people out there hurting and struggling. The elders, the seniors, everybody's struggling, and yet it seems uh, we're not on top of the list, but we're the people paying the bills. My question would be, you know, what's the end game? What's your plan? Because right now, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, how do you keep all the services and support programs going if you don't have the revenue coming in from oil and gas? And you actually have mentioned the elders about three or four times in our conversation. What Mm -hmm. did the elders tell you about the oil and gas industry? Well, you hear some stories out there of people talking about snakes all over the ground, and some people interpret that as pipelines everywhere. I don't think it's the snakes. I I think it's the people running the show, pulling the wool over your eyes and stuff like that. It was funny, you know, before the downturn in 2014, a respected elder here from the Doig River, his name is Jerry Attachi, said, Boomer, he says, things are going to slow down. He says, better hold on to your money. At the time, I thought, you know what? I can't see it happening. Everything's approved. The Pacific Northwest line, all the First Nations have signed on. They've come to agreement. It's going to happen. Honestly, I had everything banking on it to happen. And so did a lot of people up here. It was a time when everything was full bore hair straight back. You couldn't keep up. (laughs) You didn't go and look for work because there was so much work that you were just trying to stay on top of. I guess it was good. It's a good experience, you know, to have the slowdown. Definitely a learning curve like, like life is every time you turn around. That's true enough. And I was actually in Kitimat about a year and a half ago when the Heisler First Nation had a sort of a trade show and conference. 
about Indigenous involvement in the LNG Canada and the coastal gas lake projects. Um, but I met four people from Fort St. John who were down looking for business. And yep. things had slowed down a bit in the Fort St. John area. Did you actually go to that event? No. The first time I met you, we were at Prince George last March, I believe, for IRC. That's where I first ran into you. Listen, Boomer, it has been wonderful talking to you. I really appreciate your time to talk to us at McDonald Murray Institute. I really like the work that you're doing with your Indigenous Resource Network. And if there's anything we can do at McDonald Murray to promote the kind of activities you're doing and tell your stories, please let us know. Even at McDonald Murray, we spent a lot of time in the high air of policy and yep. talking about, you know, Bill C-69 and we talk about UNDRIP and we talk about all those things, all of which are important on the ground as well. But it's really valuable to us here from an Indigenous business person. You've had a fascinating life. I must say I'm really impressed with your great success. Finish up our time here today by saying I wish you even more. Hope the economy keeps getting stronger and I hope you get stronger as well. Thank you so much. You know, one thing I want to finish with is we've always strived to be number one. We wanted to be top notch. I guess that's why we called our company that. We want to show First Nations people that there is a way to capitalize on the opportunities and how to do it responsibly and the whole industry to account where we want to be at the table. We want to have decision making, but at the same time, we want to capitalize on opportunities too. We've always prided ourselves on doing a good job and trying to get the next job through hard work and word of mouth. Well, you deserve the success you've had. I grew up in the, as they say, in the Yukon in the 60s and 70s. Indigenous-owned businesses were few and far between. Now, in fact, when you go back to the Yukon, you discover Indigenous businesses are front and center. They're equal partners in major projects. They're doing all the service and supply work. And you know the interesting thing about it? The Yukon's much better for it. And one yeah. of the things that I would say in Fort St. John is, you know, your success becomes a success of Fort St. John. You don't take anything from the community. You don't take anything from the region. Your success keeps more of the money in the region. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Well, listen, Boomer, Israel, it's wonderful speaking to you again. Great to see you. And thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and ideas on the important work that Indigenous business people are doing in the oil and gas sector. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ken. Appreciate it.